Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Use your kayak to paddle us with here. You would think that sounds extreme. Unless you actually saw the picture of a guy or a video of a guy who was kayaking on Amadou Benoue. It's absolutely incredible. I, I know I sound quite a number of times. Rain, rain, go away. Uh, yesterday. It's uh, incredible. All right, so we've come to, especially for those who maybe are here for the first time, we've been doing a series through the book of Judges. It's a mini series, so it's six, uh, six messages, but this is the last one. So it's titled The Last Savior. And uh, what we've been trying to find is that Israel was in a time of descent, morally and spiritually, in the time of the judges. And because of that spiritual descent, they also had economic descent, they had um, cultural descent, everything. Now, I think we're in a similar condition in terms of spiritual, the spiritual climate in our city. And we're saying, how can we learn how not to do things from Israel? But also, if we go to the lives of the judges who are like deliverance, how can we learn how to come out of it? Because really, this series is based on one premise. If we want to see cultural, if we want to see social renewal in this city, it must start with spiritual renewal. And so this is the last one we're going to look at um, before we go into another series. Let me start with this. Um, in 1998, for those of us who were born then, or actually who knew who was going on, but in 1998, a scandal had engulfed the US presidency. Now you can name that, you can think of what scandal, how to name it and all that, but it was really one name that really came to mind. And the scandal, the name was Monica Lewis. Monica Lewinsky. She was a White House intern um, that had an affair with the then president, Bill Clinton, I think between 95 and 96. And then this thing now came out. Now, he denied it, of course. And it turned out, when it turned out he was lying and everything was found out, the legislative branches moved to impeach him. Now, the lower house the, of Congress, the lower house, the house of um, the reps, was controlled by Republicans. And then the upper chambers of the Senate was um, controlled by Democrats. Bill Clinton was a Democratic president. So the lower house, uh, the, the upper house didn't impeach him, of course, party loyalty. But the lower house did. Now, so he wasn't, in the lower house, it, it takes both houses to be able to impeach him and then he goes. But, it, you know, it's so funny that all of this was happening during a time of considerable, one of the greatest periods of economic growth that the U.S. had faced, right, during Bill Clinton's time. And a lot of the people were asking, as well as some of the supporters were asking, this guy's an incredible leader. Why at this time, why with a guy so competent, should we actually try to be impeaching? Look at what he's doing. I mean, his competency shows. He used to say, uh, how, to, how do you win an election? Bill Clinton had these uh, few words. Is the economy stupid? And he was doing by his word. It was really the economy. He was doing so they were asking, why when we have such a competent leader do you want to impeach him? 
to which those who were against him, especially the Republicans, at least for us, uh, the party political level, those who were against him said, well, it's because of one thing. Character. Character. Yes, he's competent, but we also need leaders that have character. Uh, sidebar, never mind the fact that 18 years later, they probably you know, pushed a candidate uh, that was probably more <laughs> morally dubious than Bill Clinton, but we'll leave that one aside. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, but character and competence, gift and godliness. Recently, a very popular gospel musician received a comment on one of his social media platforms. And the commenter was basically saying that he was thanking him because he was attributing a song that that musician had written and used to perform. He attributed a miracle in his life to that song. And so he was trying to thank him. He said, I was listening to this thing. He keyed into the uh, song. And this uh, testimony occurred. Now, one of them was this, that he had left the job a month ago. I think like he left the job here in May. But he was paid June salary. He was paid for June. And so, you know, obviously, like, uh, this, this is, this is, there, there's something there. So a guy who said, yeah, never commented on social media, everybody, you know all these people that say, I've never commented before, but I just feel, so he was one of those guys. So I've never commented before, but, but guy, I think there's a problem here. Um, integrity matters. You have not received this blessing from God. You should actually return this thing. And then he begged the, uh, the musician that he should also... You know, this is your fan, your follower. Actually, please rebuke this guy so that he doesn't attribute something else to you. Now, of course, the musician was under no obligation to respond. Can you respond to every request that you have? But he did uh, choose to respond. But he responded to the other guy, not the guy who saw the miracle. And he basically said, this miracle is about unmerited favor. And by definition, unmerited favor is getting what you don't deserve. So... And he also said, please stop teaching God's people, please stop teaching God how to bless his people. You're just arguing that somebody is collecting his miracle. <laughs> now, it's sort of funny, but let me put it this way. If we are going to see renewal in our city, we've spoken a lot about collaboration, we've spoken about the weakness, our humility, and all that, but if we're going to see renewal in our city, we have to see godly and uh, gifted leaders, very, very gifted leaders, who are also godly as well. It doesn't just matter, your gift doesn't just matter alone, and we do need people with giftings. We need both clergy and both laity kind of leaders, but people armed with character. So you see, in the passage that we read, Israel's mess has continued. And judge after judge after judge has come. So now, we've now had 11 judges. I don't say whether we treated the 11 judges, I'm just saying, by this point. We've had 11 judges, and you know, it's 12 tribes, so maybe it's the 12th one, 12 is the number of completion, whatever. They were all waiting for the last judge. The last judge, maybe he's the one that we've been looking for. And this guy, that is going to be the last judge, he has four chapters dedicated to him more than any of those judges. In fact, one whole chapter, chapter 13, is dedicated to his birth. This guy's going to be a pretty big deal. I mean, an angel actually came to visit his parents for his birth. So perhaps the book of Judges has saved the last savior 
to be the leader that we can model ourselves after. So in this, in this sermon, the last Savior, we're going to look and we're going to consider the last judge, Samson, and looking at aspects of his life between chapter 13 to 16. So Jumoko only just read some parts of 13 and the whole of 16, but I'll be referring to uh, some parts of 14 and 15. So we're going to see what God can be telling us urban negotiators who are seeking spiritual, social, and cultural renewal in our city. And I want us to look at this under three headings, all right? The last thing under these three headings. His checkered history, his greatest victory, and his larger story. His checkered history, his greatest victory, and his larger story. Should add this several may go just slightly a little bit longer than the others. I said that because you're not really going anywhere with this race. <laughs> so let's start with the first point. His checkered history. Go to chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Who's tired of that phrase? Right? It, has, it just keeps on occurring over and over. Now, but this is the last occurrence. We've seen it before. Before, and don't forget, this phrase is always set up for a job that we're going to look deeply into. So, we see that in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 7 for Othniel, 3, verse 12 for Abel, 4, verse 1 for Deborah, 6, verse 1 for Gideon, 10, verse 6 for Jephthah, and now we see it for Samson. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord again. Now, one quick thing. I said this is the last occurrence of this. This is the last occurrence of this. But later, in chapter 17, verse 6, and the end of the book, it does say, it's not, when it says that it's the last occurrence of this, it's not because they didn't commit evil again. But it describes it in another way. In 17, verse 6, and 21, verse 25. It doesn't say that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of God. But if you look at the ESV version, it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Evil in the eyes of God, right in the eyes of man. There's something very, very deeply concerned about that. It's going to be something that we'll, we'll see through this passage. That sometimes, what we see, as Jesus said, what people value highly is actually detestable in God's sight. What was evil in the eyes of God was right in the eyes of men. Now, they did evil. This time, the oppression, the, job, the, the, the sequence follows. God judges them. But this time, the judgment is, is the worst ever. They are under the oppression of Philistines for 40 years. This is at least double the next to it. The, the, the second was 20 years. So really, this guy is a pretty bad deal. The situation was so dire, 40 years. It was so dire that the Savior that had to come had to be very extraordinary. Now remember I said, I said, if we read 13 verse 1 to 5, that Samson had a spectacular birth involving an angel. I mean, all of this definitely was set up for a spectacular life. And Samson was a guy who was absolutely spectacular, as we know. But his life was emblematic of Israel's own descent. This savior was also a mirror of the nation. Though he was uniquely chosen and empowered by God, he experienced a downward spiral in his life which follows a pattern that is taken by many gifted leaders. Now, what was this pattern? If we can put it in three, um, in a progression of three, it goes something like this. 
Self-promotion leading to self-justification leading to self-gratification. Self-promotion leading to self-justification and then leading to self-gratification. Let's take self-promotion. Now, we often, let's, let's be honest, we learned about something before, we read about something, maybe we told some, uh, the story to something uh, to our little uh, kids, especially the boys. We often think of how superhuman this guy was, right? Very, very superhuman. But notice this, if you look in um, verse 25 of chapter 13, if you look in verse 14, uh, uh, chapter uh, 6 of 14 and 19, and 15 verse 14, all the works, all the fantastic things that Samson did, it says it was done because of the Spirit of the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stare him while he was in Mahane Dan, between Zora and Eshtau. Verse 6, 14, 6. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him, so that the lion, he tore, he, he told that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands, like he would have done it a young ghost. And you see that in verse 19, and all of these things. Frank, uh, Francis. <laughs> Something like all the things that he did was actually by the Spirit of God. For many times, even we, when we read it, we Christians, we often think of how great something is. This is an indictment of idolatry's view of people with extraordinary gifts. You know, we're very drawn to people with gifts. Let's not lie. If somebody's an amazing speaker, then we move. If somebody's very, very skilled, uh, maybe an amazing singer, we move. We are naturally taken by gifts. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just when you make gifts the most important thing, there's a problem there. You know the bad thing about it was that Samson himself believed his own height. He believed in his own height. I mean, what was he using the gifts for? He was using God's grace for self-promotion. In verse, um, uh, he used it for riddled revenge and boasting. So in verses um, 12 to 14 of chapter 14, after he torn a lion to pieces, you know, gathered some guys around, had a wonderful feast, and decided, hey, I'm just going to give a riddle here. And the Spirit of God came upon him to do that, but what was he using it for? Let me give people a riddle. Now, verse 19, after they had the people, he had given the riddle, and the people had kind of tricked him to get the answer, the guy was angry. So what did he then use the grace for? He used it to revenge. I will get my revenge on the Philistines, 14 verse 19. And after that, he also had another encounter with them in chapter 15. This time, his people delivered him because uh, the Philistines were coming against his people. And they said, we want Samson. So they brought Samson. And then he came to the Philistines. They, tore, uh, they tied him in a rope. Eventually, the spirit of God came upon him. The rope just went like it was a very like piece of paper. And then he got the jawbone of an ass or a donkey. And after he did that, he slew 1,000 men. Uh, did he give the glory to God? No. He even gave it a rhyme. He said, with the jawbone of an ass, this, literally this word says in the Hebrew, with the jawbone of an ass, I have made asses out of them. 15 verse 16. Now if you contrast this, this kind of behavior, contrast with what was said in Joshua chapter 23 verse 10 to 11, Joshua the book that comes before this. It says, one of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. No, Francis Samson was in love with himself. He used it for self-promotion. 
when you think about it, self-promotion is something that comes to God well. But let's get back to something. You see, we, we and many of us are gifted here. We are gifted, some of us are gifted leaders in our various spheres. But we must be careful not to take the glory for our talent. Not to take the glory for our ability. What is it that you have that you have all been given? You never actually worked for a talent. You may have had a talent and you may have worked on the talent, but you didn't work for the talent. And even the good that we do, even if we give so much to people, and sometimes say, no, 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 uh, you know, let's start with uh, all glory to God. Let's say, uh, thank you, Shekhar. No, the glory is to God. Look at me, look at me. The glory is to God. Look at me, look at me. Or sometimes we stylishly, we work the conversation such that we can get compliments from people. We don't do it directly. We are too smart for that. But we somehow drop out we give to these people. Not for the sake of explaining something. It's just unnecessary information. It's just a stylish way of dropping information on our good deeds so that people can compliment us and see us to be more than we are not. Whereas Jesus says this in Matthew 6, and Jesus says in Matthew 6, uh, 3 to 4, that really, when we do good, we should not allow our right hand to know what our left hand is doing. You see, our gifts are not there to promote us, especially if we are Christians. Our gifts are there to promote God and his kingdom. But Samson was turning his gifts to being his own personal PR machine, self-promotion. Now, what does self-promotion then lead to? Well, self-promotion then leads to self-justification. What do I mean by this? So, you have your gifts. And this leads to successes, right? You, you, people know you as a high flyer in the company, or maybe in the church you are very good at singing, or you know, you achieve many things because of your successes. Or maybe you are very good, you understand the word of God, or you understand concepts, and you're able to teach. It leads to successes. You have a following. Now, from the success, here's the mistake we often make. We read God's approval through the success. We look at the success in our life and we say that God certainly approves of my life. Let me give you an example. There was an artist on radio, I don't even know his name, but it's meant to be a pretty big deal. And uh, was being interviewed, he sang a lot of songs. I think most of his songs used to have some kind of moral content. I think some of them even religious, uh, Christian. And when he just dropped a new um, uh, song, and the song was really very huge. It was, um, it was just out of character. It was doing the normal pop thing, you know, talking about girls, talking about all those. It was morally objectionable. Now, many times, if you're the kind of person that already had that track record, no one is going to question it. But they threw a question to him because this was writing the kind of songs that he sang. And somebody said, why would you be singing this kind of song? And I remember what the artist, artist said. He said, well, this song was my most successful. Why would God allow it to be that successful if he thought it was wrong? So what happens? The end justifies the means. Part of what we judge our leaders, so it's not just the leaders themselves. We judge our leaders and say, oh, look at this guy. He made a success. He built this company from nothing. 
There's nothing about the way he treats his staff. Well, he's a wonderful leader because he brought something up. This guy preaches and thousands are saved. He says nothing about how he manipulates people for money. See, quite often we look at success and then we judge it as a sign of God's approval. It makes us unteachable. And this was Samson's problem. In chapter 14, verse 3, he wanted a woman so badly. He told his parents, get me that woman. And the father was saying, well, you know, why can't you choose a woman from our own place? And the woman wasn't, you know, from Israel. She was from Gaza, from the Philistines. And he said, why shouldn't you? And he said, give me that woman now. Get her for me. He was unteachable. You see, Samson, more than any of the um, um, judges, was a re- he was a lone ranger. Where do you see Samson with anybody here? If you read 13, 14, 15, 16, nobody. He was a lone ranger. Why? He had this enormous amount of gifts. Why do I need anyone? And if he's a lone ranger, obviously, no one is trying to correct him. When he's all, the only people that could talk to him, his parents, get to meet him, he wasn't even listening to his parents. You see, the more we continue, if we look at this kind of self-justification, seeing our, the approval of God because we are successful, even when we need people, we don't surround ourselves with people that can really tell us the truth. We surround ourselves with yes men. And so the echo, they become like echo chambers. People that just keep telling us, they're just so great. That message people wonderful. Did you see how the people were flocking after you? Oh, those people that are listening to you, your business skills are, they just keep telling us, and we keep believing the hype. And by that, in that regard, what happens is our sin starts to become hidden from us. Because we learned how to justify ourselves, we surrounded ourselves with yes men, all of a sudden we start being recreated, we don't actually see the sin. And and Samson's biggest problem, sexual loss, was therefore also hidden from him. So self-justification leads to self-gratification. By the time we get to chapter 16, with the famous story with Delilah, a pattern had emerged of a sinful lifestyle that was born out of sexual gratification um, that we see in Samson. Now, the question is, how did this happen? How did it happen? One of my favorite verses um, in Judges is 16 verse 19. In 16 verse 19, we see, it says, I'm putting him to sleep. This is Delilah. She put Samson to sleep. Where? Eh? On her Now, some of us who are married here, we know how, why that is. It's not an easy thing, right? You know, you know that, that is a very, very a nice place to be. Now, I also wonder with something here, something. Look, at for four chapters, we've been told that he tore a lion to shreds like he was telling a young goat, 14.6. He captured 300 foxes, 15.4. He slew 1,000 men, 15.15. He lifted the whole city gate, 16.3. And he's here helpless on a woman's lap. On a woman's lap. How did this happen? How did one so mighty, how did mighty have fallen on a woman's lap? How did he get to this? 
Well, you see, the, the thing about it is that it shouldn't surprise us because egregious sin always has its predecessors. People don't just fall calamitously like that. Now, Samson, if you if you recall from the story uh, that we wrote, you know, 13 verse 1, when he was promised to his parents, they said he had to be one that would take a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow, we see what it was about. It was a a vow that people took, a vow of separation. It wasn't mandated for everyone. In fact, it was voluntary, but you know, he was told that uh, by his parents that he should take. But it was one to dedicate oneself to the Lord and involve uh, at least three things, about four, but uh, three things here. You should abstain from drinking, and no razor should touch your head, and you shouldn't go near a dead body. Number one to six. Number six, one to six. Abstain from drinking, no razor should touch your head, and you should not go near a dead body. In 14 verse 10, we are told about something that it's not that he was drinking. He had thrown a feast. But actually, in the literal translation, there was that he had thrown a drinking feast. You know, he didn't throw, for people that drink and drink hard, right? You know that you don't start with six bottles of Buddha for the first day you start drinking, right? You start with... I'm not, I'm not advocate by the I'm not advocate, I'm just trying to explain. You start with one bottle, you get into one bottle, you start with two bottles, you get it. So if something is throwing a drinking feast, it's because he started drinking little by little, and now he's become a lifestyle. But he was a Nazarite. Or they said you should not touch a dead body at all. He probably started touching one dead body, and all of a sudden, before we know it, in verse in chapter 15, verse 15, he's now killing what? 1,000 people. Not first, because he killed a, a lion, he went back and he took the honey. So again, he starts one way, one way, he cannot be corrected, he does two of that, he cannot be corrected, and this increases. A simple lifestyle, for any of us, never ever starts just like that. It is a pattern of increasing sin, which is unchecked, and is unchecked because we have nobody being able to speak into our lives. And before we know it, we justify ourselves and then we get into a pattern of the lifestyle. And we can't even care. The conscience is seared at this point. So how did he lose his hair? Well, it was a pattern of sexual loss. At this moment, in the first encounter we see in 14 verses 2 to 3, the one that I was saying, he was asking, burning desire, uncontrollable desire, get me this woman. Like he just wanted to you know, sleep with her. And then the next time, we go into 16 verse 1, he goes to the Philistines' um, uh, 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 city, knowing there will be danger, but he just wants to sleep with a prostitute. Despite the danger. So when he is now here on Delilah's lap, you should ask him, of course. You see, that sexual gratification will be his downfall isn't at all surprising. Now, I know, as the reading was even going, we still always say this. Okay, he's on her lap. But I want to find out, why was Samson so stupid? You know that question, right? She comes, she said, what's the sign of your power? And now said, well, if you do this, if you tie me with ropes that don't, whatever, you know, my power will go. And they said, oh, okay, you guys sleep. She ties him with the rope. And then she now said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Ah. Well, so at this point, you should know that the next time she's going to ask you for it, you shouldn't tell her, this woman is out to get you. She does it the second time. She says, you, 
if you if you tie this kind of uh, rope that came around the other one. And then she does it the third time. No, if you braid my hair. And all the time she keeps saying, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. She's out to get you. And yet, now, it then says, and I know many men, all girls here would like, would like this. Now says, she nagged him day and night. Now, some men will tell you, look, you can never fight against that one. And if you are going to be nagged day and night, as in, well, I would say there was more. There was more to it. We often think something is so stupid. Why is it that he fell for this? Well, picture this. Both Samson and Delilah were in this relationship for wrong reasons. For Delilah, we see in 16 verse 5 that she really wanted fame and fortune. She didn't care. She didn't care about this guy. The rulers came to meet her, so she was famous, and they promised her money. So she was a gold digger. But Samson wanted something more. Samson wanted completion. What do I mean by that? At this point, Samson had been living a debauched lifestyle, away from God. And with that lifestyle, because sin always disappoints us, he really couldn't get the things that wanted that he wanted in the deepest part of his soul. See, something was someone who was who was working for God without walking with God. And all of a sudden, that God-shaped heart in his soul needed to be filled. But because he's walking away from God, he then starts to look for it in something else. In other words, Delilah, he was looking something in Delilah that only God can give to him. Delilah became his God. Or, love became his God. And we're very familiar with this. I mean, many songs in the last 30, 40 years, we build this. It's something that someone called, uh, uh, the pastor in Redeemer said, called in, the, in his book, Meaning uh, of Mind, Apocalyptic Love. Now, think of this song. I like this song. But, it actually demonstrates it. Lionel Richie and Diana Ross, Endless Love. My love, there's only you in my life. The only thing that's right. My first love. You are every breath that I take. What? Every breath that I take, you can't even, you can't even create any kind of whatever. But you're every breath that I take. Can she bring oxygen and, and hydrogen together? No. But you're every breath that I take. You are every step I There's another part that says, and love, oh love, I'll be a fool for you. That's why it's on the woman's lap. Because eventually he ends up playing the fool for the Philistines. That's exactly what is going on. You mean the world to me. I found you my endless. Notice, it's not just love, but it's endless and eternal love. No human being on this world can give you that. But because he walked away from God, and the Bible says that he has put eternity in our hearts, he started seeking for it in the wrong places. And it's so true of the way we view love in Lagos. A very radio station, one of their adverts, you know, because they talk about love a lot. And you hear somebody say, I am in love with love. I know, I know, I know. You can look that it's, it's silly. But I don't also feel we become addicted. You say, why does someone who is addicted keep going back and falling again? Because it's an addiction. Idols eventually make us addicted because we get the thing, but we find that the thing doesn't satisfy us, and then we become even more thirsty. 
Another love song. Love remains the drug that's the high and not the pill. To me, you're like a growing addiction that I cannot deny. That's still for fishermen. To me, you're like a growing addiction that I cannot deny. So this addiction ultimately, yes, makes us stupid, but there is a pattern, there is a logic, a moral or an immoral logic to it, or a spiritual logic to it. And in the end, it's destruction. It's the reason why some people wonder, why is it that they keep gambling and gambling and losing their money and they keep going? Or why is it that some people keep getting swindled and manipulated by preachers who actually keep promising them more than the Bible actually promises Self-promotion, self-justification, self-gratification, which ultimately leads to destruction. You see, Samson's life is representative of the people that he led. They continually did not listen to God. They followed the idolatry of their hearts and the nation around them. And now, like Samson, they are playing the fool for their enemies. 16 verse 25. While they were in high spirit, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of prison and he performed for them. Painful. So they tried it story. But now that leads me to the second point his greatest victory. It's so funny that because of his self absorption, Samson always saw all battles with the Philistines to be about him. Now I will get my revenge on the Philistines. It was always about him. And we see all these different account, encounters in, in chapter 14 and 15. He had already scored victories over them. Keep thinking though, it was about him. So that even in his final ordeal, when they have now brought him out and he's performing and he's, they gouged his eyes out, what did Samson say? 16 verse 28. There's something pray to the Lord. Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more so that I can defeat your enemies and your name can be praised. You know, is that what he said? Strengthen me just once more and let me, with one blow, get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Even when suffering comes our way, to be able to jolt us to see how we have departed, when you are in this state, it's so difficult. You still make it about you. And this is a danger that gifted leaders will be well aware of. That's what it is. Um, but the question then comes, why does God use him anyway? Let's ask that question. If this guy is so flawed, why does God use him? After all, something used God's grace, God's goodness to bring about evil. But you see, but the Bible teaches us that even though God doesn't condone, condone evil acts, He often uses our evil to sometimes work out His own good. You see, actually, when Samson was trying to get that lady, he told his parents to get the lady in chapter 14, verse 3 to 3. He later says then that in, three, in verses 3 to 4, that the, his parents did not know that God was going to use this occasion to get revenge on the Philistines. God often uses evil to work out good. He calls it evil, so he doesn't condone it. But he, being the sovereign one, is able to work out good. That's why God uses something. And the next question is, you say he's flawed. Who does God use that is a flawed? Who else has God got? 
But let's come back to the story. Samson thought it was about him. Samson thought it was about him. But even the Philistines, in verse 23 to 24, knew that it wasn't. It was a cosmic battle. It was a battle between their God and his God. And they thought, now that the strongest person of the Israelites has been delivered to us, our God has had victory. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, our God has delivered something, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slaves. Of course, God, the true God, was not going to have any of us. So yes, Samson actually asked for him to revenge. God, give me power for me to revenge my enemies. God gave him that power, but it was to prove a point. That neither Dagon, the cultural idols, or even Samson, with our personal idols, will receive praise in his own stead. So this last encounter, just by sheer numbers, Samson scored his greatest victory. 16 verse 13. And God got the victory over the false gods, his worshippers, and that worship system. And that worship system. And finally, it is was Israel's greatest victory. Through the last judge, God had now defeated the God of the Philistines. So it all ends well, right? Not so quickly. Let's finish up with the final point. His larger story. His larger story. Now, after Samson, there were no more judges in Israel. But we still have five chapters. And what happens in those five chapters, things spiral out of control. It is totally insane. In fact, in chapter 19, probably the worst thing that even the Israelites who are weaker and say, ah, this kind of thing happening here, it culminated with the gang rape of a man's concubine. Now, actually, they wanted to rape the man. Instead of the man coming out or whatever, you know what he did not say, okay, take my own concubine. And they raped the, the poor lady all through the night. And then she came to the door of where the man was in his guest place, and they didn't open. And then he came out, and he now saw the woman dead. Man, very hard. No, what did he do? He carried her to his home. He cut her all the limbs, and cut her into twelve parts, and then sent her around the whole of Israel. So even the Israelites said, "Men, we have really descended." Nineteen verse thirty. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, "Such a thing has never been seen or done." Not since the day the Israelites came out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. We must speak up. Now, but the context of that verse that I just read to you, which was from chapter 19, the context, chapter 19 starts in this way. In those days, Israel had no king. And the point that is trying to drive at is, and it's, it's also what summarizes the book. At the end of the book, it says that in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The, the, what is trying to point out to us is the chaos and apostasy to which the people of Israel descended in the absence of a godly king. Before Moses died, God had told Moses that in, in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14, 20, the kind of king that Israel should have. That king, was his main function was to lead the people to faithfulness to Israel's God by instructing in and modeling obedience to his law. I say that again. The king Israel had, his main priority was not even to lead them into battle. 
His main priority was to read the law of God, memorize it, meditate on it day and night, and then model it in obedience, and also ensure that the people were faithful to that law. In the absence of that kind of thing, why do you not think things would have happened this way? I say that again to us as leaders. People are not just needing your gifts. In fact, in leadership in the church, Hebrews 13.7 and Hebrews 13.17, one, he says, obey your leaders, but the other one, he said, imitate your leaders. In other words, the leaders are worth obeying because they are worth imitating. Now, being the last and most notable judge, Samson's failure paves the way for a king after God's own heart. In other words, Samson is a sort of forerunner. He was the last judge. And we've seen the failure of the judges. Israel needs a king. So Samson is a foreigner for a king. And that's why when the book of Judges ends, what is the next book after the book of Judges? Who knows? The next book? Oh yeah, check your indexes. Ruth. And when we often think about Ruth, you know, if you want to teach a women's conference, teach about Esther, teach about Ruth, teach about um, Mary. And that's not really what the book of Ruth is about. If you read the very beginning of the book of Ruth, it says that God was planning something. It says the setting of the book of Ruth is in the times when judges ruled. Then we had this man that moved into Moab with his family and all that. At the end of the book of Ruth, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 18 to 22, what do we have? Do you know how it ends? He ends with the genealogy. And the genealogy goes from Obed and comes all the way to David, the one whom Samson was a forerunner to. Yeah, I know that Saul came. So you now have one Samuel, two Samuel, one king, two kings. But Saul was a setup. He wasn't the king that Israel was looking for. God rejected him. And it was David that God said, I will build you an everlasting dynasty. So the failure of something, the failure of the judges, makes us anticipate this king that God is looking at promise in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 to 20. And so David becomes that king. David did more for Israel than any other king after him. He was the model king of the Old Testament, chosen by God, a prophet, a psalmist, Israel's uh, psalmist. But you know what? David himself did not deal with some of the issues that plagued Samson. In Deuteronomy 14, 17, it says that, in Deuteronomy 17, 14, it says that, um, 17, 17, that this king should not have multiple wives. David did. David himself was an adulterer. And David himself was a murderer like Samson. So even though he was a foreigner to David in some sort, and David really exceeded many people's expectations, even David could not be the final answer to God's salvation plan. And so in that regard, Samson reminds us of another foreigner. Why do I say he reminds us of another foreigner? Because there was a foreigner that was going to come thousands of years later, very similar to Samson. He too was born to a barren woman, like Samson. He was also a Nazarite. In fact, the only two Nazarites that we ever know of in the Bible were Samson and this guy. And he also lost his life because of a less virtuous woman. Any guesses to who I'm talking about? John the Baptist. Samson was a foreigner to David, 
But John the Baptist also was a foreigner to another king. And this king, something also reminds us a lot about, because he also had an annunciation. That is, his birth was also spectacular. It also involved angels. He's not even involved in star. But more than anything, when Samson was born to a barren woman, this one was born to a virgin. When Samson was to deliver his people from their enemies, he too was, but unlike Samson, he wasn't delivering. The enemies were not people. The enemy was their sins. Like Samson, he also had the Spirit of God upon him. But unlike Samson, who occasionally the Spirit would come upon him, this one had the Spirit upon him in full measure. And he used his gifts, not for himself, self-promotion, but for the benefit of others. And most importantly, he lost his life, but not for any sin like something committed. And unlike something who for revenge killed more in death than in life, Jesus for love saved more in death than in life. This is the king we're looking for. He was in the line of David, but he is the savior that all the judges could not remove. And yes, he died. And think, oh, but if he died, how is he reigning? Well, he rose from the dead. And now he's enthroned to reign over us all, now and forever, when his kingdom is enthroned. You see, by trusting in Jesus, we can actually be, as leaders, we can be both gifted and godly. He gives us of his spirit and he gives us. He gives us his spirit fully, but, all, but because we trust in Jesus and not our successes, we are free and liberated to obey God. You see, something couldn't, because the successes was how he justified himself and his own value. But when we trust in Jesus, Jesus' success is enough for us. Guys, I really do think we need a revival in our city. And going through the book of Judges, I'm more convinced than ever that we do need it. Personally, to me, this was the most convicting message as a leader. But I can tell you this if we have leaders who not just trust in Christ, but model their lives in Christ with our gifts and godliness, multiplied throughout our city, guarantee this. We will have social and cultural renewal because the spiritual renewal will not start. Isn't this worth praying for? I'm looking forward to it. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this series. We thank you for how you've taught us. We long for you, O Lord, to move in our city, but we know that you have to move in our lives. We long, O God, to be the kind of people, the left-handed saviors, the unexpected saviors, the collaborative saviors. We long for you to move, O Lord. And we long to, for you to provide for us godly and gifted leaders. People who model after Christ, but people who also trust in Christ. Grant us such a God and make us such. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.
you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. <laughs>